Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Free Thinkers Forum, Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 23, and we're rejoined by Sarah Omer. She's an Hi. associate professor of Latin American Studies, African American Studies, and Women's Studies at Lehman College in Bronx, New York. Um, it's, I think it's part of a larger city, uh, a larger system called CUNY, which is the <laughs> City University of New York system. That's right. uh, she's coming back to rejoin us, and we have a little bit more to talk about expanding on our first episode. Um, we talked a little bit about the African diaspora the first time around. This time mm-hmm. around, we're going to talk more about Brazil, U.S., um, correlations and differences maybe mm-hmm. from a cultural standpoint. And we might delve into a few of her articles as well that I mentioned on the last pod. Welcome to the show again, Sarah, and thanks for accepting the invitation. Hey, Kiko. Thanks for having me for two episodes. I'm excited to get a little bit deeper into um, the research, the scholarship, and as much as I can talk about my experiences in Brazil. Yes, I love that. And and don't be fooled, audience, she's probably going to be back on again. And those details will be <laughs> at a later time, but let's keep wondering and curiosity for the moment. But anyway, I did want to um, briefly mention something that we didn't talk about the last episode. We recorded the last episode, November 21st, 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us and the audience the significance of November the 20th in Brazil? Yeah, you know, I'd like actually to just talk about um, when I was there in uh, 2014, 2015, um, the day of, and that I, that's when I really learned about the significance of that date. Um, so it's a, it's a date that was created. I'm not sure what the process was for that um, to commemorate um, Black consciousness and uh, possibly the anniversary of Zumbi's death. You might have to help me out with this. Yeah, I think I think you're on the right track for sure, definitely. And. Um, and so we, uh, when I was there, um, I, I learned about it through experience. We, you know, I just found out on Facebook, people were getting together um, to march. And so in Sao Paulo and very likely in other cities in Brazil and other spaces in Brazil, people get together and march in recognition of Zumbi dos Palmares, who is um, one of the most commemorated, I'm not going to say, you know, founding member or most important because, you know, there there are just so many individuals in what was at the time the largest um, maroon community, Quilombo. Um, So the largest society of um, individuals of African descent in Brazil that was functioning independent of the plantation economy. Um, So Zumbi dos Palmares is one of the people that's most commemorated from that society. 
from Quilombo dos Palmares. And um, it's turned into uh, a big event of um, celebration, um, gatherings, which at the time when I was in Sao Paulo, that meant um, we were all going to march um, down one of the biggest avenues in Sao Paulo, uh, get together at this site. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember where we gathered, but I remember where it ended and it was a, it was a plaza uh, downtown. Um, there was a colonial building. I really should have looked up <laughs> all of the places' names. I also remember walking by the library of Mario Giandraggi and thinking of, you know, the symbolism there. Um, because, you know, just having that many um, people of African descent drive past a, you know, a Brazilian intellectual, um, a library named after Brazilian intellectual and just taking over the streets, you know, that, that the power in, in, in making public streets, mm -hmm. um, streets of black joy, black life, um, and black protest. Um, there's a lot of, you know, drums playing, chanting, gorgeous hair i mean i just i had like a series of cell phone photos of just different hairstyles tunics of all different colors uh you know all shirts with you know inspiring graphics and texts on them and you know it was a it was a, a vibrant time too 2014 i think is when uh the black lives matter movement was gaining mm -hmm. international traction um you know, with social media, people were starting to, to have similar uh, protests around the world, which isn't new, right? I mean, we had this type of, you know, international movement with Free Angela Davis movement, and then, you know, before that with decolonization and all that. But I think in 2014, it was just, it was a vibrant time um, to be a part of a march like that on November 20th. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was a month, you know, just like we have Black History Month here, what they have in Brazil is called Black Consciousness Month, o mês da consciência negra, uh, which is kind of neat if you think about it, rather than thinking of history, um, thinking of consciousness. I, I love that. And um, I'm actually trying to get us to do that a little bit more at CUNY and in New York. And so then we would have two months, right? Black History Month and then Black Consciousness Month, February, November, you know, why not? And then October, we'd make it for Latinx Month and just try to oh, start yeah. taking over the whole calendar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no way to have everything done in a month. And the last thing I'll say is we would joke with the poets that I met there. Um, well, it wasn't really joking. It was more, you know, exasperation that uh, and we have this in the U.S. too, right? November becomes less and less Black Consciousness Month and more and more running around to do all these talks for people who have never heard about Black people or Black culture um, and being very worn down. Mm -hmm. But that day um, was a day of joy, uh, a day of gathering, a day of uh, running into old friends after I'd been in old friends. I mean, I'd been in San Paulo like three months. <laughs> Uh, but I could see also, you know, people are like, hey, you know, you just, 
it was just very, very special. Um, I mean, picture, you know, a city like New York having, you know, Black History March, you know, and if, you know, all of the activists and poets, you know, intellectuals, you know, uh, community members, but it just come out and, and walk down Fifth Avenue. Um, that's, that's what was happening. And so was that the, the only time you've been to Brazil? Yes. Well, okay. No, I had gone um, a couple of years before in Rio for two and a half mm -hmm. weeks for a conference. And this was the first time I lived in Brazil for an extended period of time. And the only time. I haven't been back since. And you were in, in both times you were in very big areas, Sao Paulo and, and Rio. Yeah. Okay, because I want to kind of bring this in because I think I'm going to be able to get her on Friends Wind Dance Twine. Uh, she published a book in 1996 called Racism in a Racial Democracy. Mm. And it talks a lot about this misconception of um, people from the outside, what they think of Brazil yeah. is this um, beautiful coexistence of different racial groups and everything else. Right. And, <laughs> and we know that that has been perpetuated Sure. Especially during a period in the 40s of the last century um, from yeah. some of the sociologists in that part of the world, really mm -hmm. internationally. Um, and then it was, you know, tourism branding. To, exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the, the perfect example with the, um, I think it was the 2014 Olympics, and they were, mm. the Brazilian government was basically right. trying to get Google to take down the favela markings on Google Maps. Right. Yeah. So they wouldn't yeah. see this other part of Brazil. Yeah. Uh, wow. But what what stunned me about France Windance's wow. twine, um, her ethnographical piece, is is kind of what I want you to get at as far as those two times you were there. Did you see anything that stood out as far as a racial coexistence and just people's perceptions towards you? You know, being lighter skinned because she talks a lot about that um, in her book, but she was in a rural area. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had long dreadlocks at the time. So even if I wanted to try to pass, which I did not, I could not. Mm. Um, I always give the example of um, a faculty member that shared with me, you know, she was working in um, one of the universities and was constantly mistaken for being uh a custodian and she was an established professor in that university you know so that gives you an idea of the the harmony that's happening in brazil and and now we have the example of um you know the life and death of marielle franco i think it's something that a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, at least in our generation, can recall when um, she was assassinated. Um, it shook the world. Um, and I think a part of the shock was that it was Brazil, um, that people were not expecting that a Black woman in Brazil would have her life be as expendable as a black woman in the United States. 
Mm. Um, yeah, so those are, you know, the two drastic examples, like the, the, of the different types of deaths that affect people of color and primarily, you know, I always focus on black women. Mm -hmm. um, same can be said about indigenous communities, you know, the way they're oppressed in Brazil. Um, and what I have come to notice for the brief amount of time that I was in Brazil, you know, it was really only 10 months. A lot of it was spent doing research, right? So reading indoors or <laughs> interviewing people that I, you know, I had set up meetings with. Um, and as an American professor. So, you know, all the privileges that that comes with, the spaces I was able to navigate, you know, with a certain role. Um, but, you know, with that in mind, what I, what I was able to, what I picked up on was um, because of that narrative of the racial harmony um, that's been prevalent, um, like you were saying, since the 40s, the type of racism that I experienced, it's like it was palpable, but it was hard to pinpoint. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay. So a lot of gaslighting, um, microaggressions, mm -hmm. um, under the breath remarks, uh, body language, um, that, you know, I would always have like a double take, like, wait, did, did that really just happen? Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other side of that is just the, the absolute inhumane, um, conditions, um, that people of African descent have to go through that to me are very similar to what we're witnessing in the United States. Um, you know, the complete disregard for people as human beings, um, whether it's from the police, uh, in the school system, in the layout of the city, you know, lack of access to anything you can think of. Um, and I like to always make that comparison with the United States because I think the U.S. does this too. Like they create this narrative that, oh, like, you know, we have the Beyonce's, we have mm -hmm. the Black middle class, we have Black politicians, we've had the civil rights. Um, but the state of life of communities that are majority Black and Brown um can be compared to um favelas in sao paulo and rio de janeiro maybe it's not exactly the same but you know we can talk about you know fires breaking out in the bronx because there's no access to heat uh complete lack of access to internet food deserts you know so that it's it may not be you know the cinematic image of the favelas of people stacked on top of each other on a mm -hmm. hill in Rio, when you have like the pretty beaches at, at the bottom of the hill in Rio, but it's it's comparable. And and I right now, like 
talking to you, that's what I'm thinking about. Like we have this racial imaginary, you know, the the myth of the racialized democracy um, in Brazil um, and then the history of segregation in the US, but both nations in terms of the, the collective imaginary have similar mechanisms at work, mm-hmm. you know, that are trying to project a certain image um, of the nation um, that's pacified, um, that's an image of progress, um, that's completely false. And every day, you know, in the news, people just get in such shock. Oh my gosh, another person was shot. I was was gonna, And this comment wasn't even specifically about black people, but when I was in Spain the last time in 2018, I Mm -hmm. stayed with a person. I'm just going to put it that way. I was teaching a a class with Dawn over, you know, a group, a study abroad um, program. It was just a six week program Mm -hmm. in Spain. And I was trying to tell the person I was living with at the time, I was telling her that the United States, I actually feel more comfortable now because I was out, I think it was three o'clock in the morning and I was mm-hmm. just out on the street corner. And I was telling her how I feel safer in another country than I do in my own country. Right. Because of the, just not just the gun violence, but it's just the, um, it's almost the recklessness of the recklessness of everyday society outside yeah. of what you see on television. And yeah. Like I was telling Jay Clark a few episodes ago, he was telling us about how most police killings and stuff aren't even broadcast. Those right. are just the ones that they show you on television. Exactly. And so people are living these other realities that are hidden away. And so pe- people are so caught up in those moments on television, but there are other moments going on just like every day um, at the human level, just to the core and and some of the stuff you were describing earlier is hard to explain to people who aren't black or or um, part of a group that has been historically disenfranchised, especially when you talk about um, feelings, because people think that you're making things up. Oh, how do you know it's really racism? But yeah. why do we have to be the burdens of proof to tell you that it's racism when we're telling you that these are realities for us, this mental, psychological anguish like from day-to-day life like we know we feel racism because we know what it is we've lived it for so yeah. long but it's like describing that to other people it seems to them as something subjective and yeah. that's something that you can um you can't codify it so to them they just dismiss it because you can't explain it to them on their terms yeah and that's and that's a very frustrating um of situation to deal with, you know, because it's not just systemic. It, it's like you were saying, there's a lot of this microaggressive racism that happens. Yeah. Um, easy, especially with black people traveling abroad. It happens so yeah. often. And I think for me, Spain was like, I don't have a negative perception towards people, but most of the, most of the experiences I've had in Spain, and I've been there four different times. I haven't had good experiences just because there's a consistent basis of this microaggressive type racism that happens, whether it's a look at the metro or just some sort of a, um, like you just don't belong, that kind of a look. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's really scary um, to, to sort of compare those and contrast those experiences. 
with the broader public because it becomes just, oh, that's Sharon's individual situation or Kiko's individual mm -hmm. problem. But what does that have to do with me? Th th mm -hmm. That's the way a lot of the times it is portrayed in the media lens, especially. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a question to you that I think may interest you and some of the people that um, study what we study. I was thinking about theory in Latin America and Caribbean, especially, and just some of the writers. And I have a problem being um, someone who studies black men, you know, obviously I'm a black man, but I, I studied black men, but a lot of the philosophy that is taught in the departments that are Afrocentric are still very much dominated by men. Like, even though I know that's not the case, mm. because I do know enough about women's ideology and stuff to understand that there's another frame of thought. Um, do you have a comment about um, why that is the way it is even now in 2022, when we talk about this prioritization of masculine voices in these departments? And then could you enlighten mm. the audience to tell some of the most influential women writers and theorists for you in the region? Oh, that's, those are two great questions. I'm gonna keep it brief because I know we have a couple more topics to cover. Okay. Three minutes. You know, <laughs> the first thought that comes to mind to me is um, it's just going to take time um, for disciplines to change, right? For the canon um, to be reshaped. And it's surprising too, because a lot of the faculty are not necessarily men, but the curricula remain um, masculine or you know male oriented. Um, you know whether it's your introduction to African American studies or you know like it, it's it's just it continues to follow a pattern that's just been accepted up until now. I don't know though if it's worth generalizing that much. And I think it comes down to individual uh, instructors, faculty members to make decisions. So, you know, we can have a curriculum that doesn't say gender and sexuality, um, but we can choose in our survey classes um, you know, different courses to include those at the forefront. You know, um, it doesn't have to be, oh, like, you know, my students need to learn the whole history and then mm -hmm. we can tackle gender. You can, you can approach them together. And if you're not an expert in gender and sexuality, guess what? You have the skills to do the research, um, to include um, different voices. Some go-tos I think would be definitely Lelia Gonzalez coins the term Amefrica and whose work is translated in uh, the latest issue that um, I had the honor of co-editing with uh, Dr. Saunders and um, Luciani Ramos-Silva. Um, so her essay is in the in this issue of Women's Studies Quarterly called Solidao. 
Uh, it came out in 2021, fall 2021. And I can share the link with you so you can list it on your podcast. Definitely. I so that's it. Lilia Gonzalez. Um, and then the other big reference um, for Brazil is Sueli Carneiro. And you know, both of them are social scientists. So Lilia was in anthropology and Sueli is in sociology. And then I like to reference the the contemporaries. So Ochi Curiel, who's from the Dominican Republic um, and living in Bolivia at this time, um, that does great work in decolonial thinking and gender and sexuality and race, right? Inter intersectional approaches to decolonial thinking. And Euderkis uh, Espinosa, who's also from the Dominican Republic. Um, Tanya Saunders, who's US-based, but focuses on Cuba, you know, and then the people that you and I both know, Don Duke does phenomenal work on uh, Black women writers in Latin America, and Jerome Branch also, um, he focuses on, um, you know, more uh, I want to say currents, you know, kind of like uh, mega, mega, not mega, meta currents in, in literature and, and Black studies in Latin America. I mean, those are just a few off the top of my head, but there's so many that are coming out um, of the woodwork, so to speak, that have been publishing forever, but are just now getting recognized mm -hmm. in Brazil by main um, publishing presses, you know, because all of a sudden Black Studies has become uh, uh, something that can sell. So now, now mm -hmm. they're curious to, to publish those books. So um, <laughs> yeah, those are just a few. Can think about the top of my head. The one that I can, the one person that I really can think of because freshly writing a dissertation, uh, Jamila Hibedo. Oh, uh, yeah, that Jamila would be one Hibedo. example. I of used a lot of her stuff because recent of contemporary, uh, yeah, yeah, and clearly, and especially the bell hooks, like that whole um line of thought, a lot of the intersectional um analyses. Mm -hmm. Um, so so audience, there's a lot of um, collaboration, if you will. I think if you're doing it the right way, as Sarah was mentioning, um, even if I'm doing Black men, to me, I wouldn't have been able to complete my project without the influential white women, the Black women, the Indigenous women writers and theorists. Um, you almost right. have to get the information from the women, <laughs> right. even if you're studying the Black men or anyone else. Because um, a lot of the men did not have the theory basis, um, and and gender has become this big, big area of um, it's almost exploited now because everyone it seems like is going into black studies now. Like people who I know, like had no sort of expertise in it, are kind of positioning themselves as one of those people now. They're curious and interested, mm -hmm. and yeah, and people are realizing, wow, I you know I. I really have to learn this and know about this and stay current. Yeah. But I did want to get into um, a little bit of your articles um, before we depart. Okay. I know you got places to go and I do too. <laughs> the Crump article is the one that really um, amazed me. 
hmm. when I was looking at my notes. Uh, her article is called In the Beginning Was Body Language, Clowning and Crump as Spiritual Healing and Resistance. And I confess that I didn't even know what Crump was until I read your article. Um, that's a beautiful article, by the way. And your other one is as well, The Making and Salsen of Asiocracy in Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. Both of these articles I'm going to link in the episode description. But um, what is Great. Crump to the audience that doesn't understand? And how did you tie that into a larger framework of Black people internationally? Yeah, so, you know, it's if you can think of uh, breakdancing, right? That's something I think that everybody can think of um, and twerking, right? Everybody knows about twerking. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a type of dance um, that came out of uh, Holly Watts. If you were to watch people um, crump, you could, it, it looks like um, the entire body is going through uh, vibration. Um, some people might not be used to the aesthetic and think it looks aggressive or violent. Um, and it utilizes a lot of isolated movements, which means uh, the chest and arms could be moving in one way while the lower part of the abdomen and the legs could be moving another way. Mm. Um, it's been featured in, in, you know, more popular videos. I think, I think that some crump dancers were, um, in videos with Madonna. Oh, okay. Um, so it's, I think people have seen it, just might not know that there was a name to it. Um, the way for me that it connects to the greater African diaspora is, you know, is through dance and the function that uh, dance plays for the young adults of Hollywoods, right? So a lot of the movements um, and the techniques are similar to Afro-Caribbean dance uh, movements and, and West African dance movements. And then the role that the dance is playing um, in these communities um, for these people, the way they describe it, right, is uh, it's healing, it, it builds solidarity, um, it channels out um, all of the aggression um, that's directed towards them, it gives them a sense of agency, empowerment, and a voice. So. Yeah, it, it just helps enact community building and spiritual resistance, which is one of the arguments that I make in the article. And has this um, crunk um, dancing, has this expanded outside of the Hollywood area or is that pretty much? A, I think a, so. A, yeah, I think it picked thing. up and I think it was even um, taken on by um, other communities, so you know, Asian American communities. Uh, we're developing their own style. So just like, uh, you know, any really just like breakdancing or any other type of like dance that's specific to hip hop or just dance in general, you know, it, it does break away from, you know, where it originated and the different people make it their own. I liked how you tied the resistance aspect into it because 
one of my um, parts of my dissertation had to do with tr um, generational traumas and and Crump is a recognition. And you're saying that this is a conscious um, connection to um, the trauma, the historical trauma of Black people, that that mm -hmm. is something that's very conscious in the movements. Why repeat that? You're saying that Crump is very much conscious of those of that resistance to symbolize through um, the historical trauma of, of Black people. And so that yeah. it's almost like a liberation um, yeah. movement in a way, because I know when you said twerking, and I know some of the comments that I was watching on some of these videos, some of the people were kind of like turned off by it, but that was going, that was defeating the purpose of what you're describing is this is mm. meant to be liberating, it's not meant to be sexualized. Is meant to be an expression for people. Yeah, and um, and I have a quote from Dragon in the article too that says, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, these kids aren't there, just heathen thugs. No, what we are is oppressed. So they definitely have that consciousness of um, what is happening around them the way society needs their bodies to be um and how they get to circumvent that through the dance okay i do want to transition briefly over to the other article that i referred to which yeah. is um, the making and and silencing of axiocracy in brazil mm -hmm. um the one part of the article that really um it caused a lot of, um, I don't know what it caused me. I was upset, obviously, um, but I'm not surprised. There was that part you wrote, wrote in the article about a panel with Christiana Sobral and how they were yeah. basically hidden in plain sight. Like, what was that exactly about? Right, right. So, so this article is actually similar to the Crump article, except rather than talking about dance, I start to talk about poetry and literature and the, the spiritual empowerment that occurs through poetry and literature to the point that it is um, carving out a space for another type of citizenship and social order. And so that's where the ashe, which means spirit, Ashiocracy comes from. So it's re, you know, creating a social order based on spirit um, tied to um, Africana, African diasporic religions. We talked about that in the last episode and how that is uh, liberating in a context of a nation that erases any opportunities to really participate in civil society. And so the example that I give is very telling of the reality in, in Sao Paulo and in other spaces in Brazil. So it was a, it was a literature festival and it's Fliki Sampa. Um, you know, every year they have this festival and that year they were commemorating the anniversary of um, Carolina Maria Jesus, who's, um, you know, canonical, Black woman writer in Brazil, very much recognized um, throughout the country and internationally. She's been translated and, you know, her, her diaries have been translated in multiple languages. 
So uh, the Palmares University, that's a, a you know majority black university was hosting the event and it had all of these facades of, you know, this is really going to be honoring black literature and black culture in Brazil. But then when I got there, um, I quickly realized it was honoring um, black culture that was not from Brazil. Um, you know, so the, the, you know, what's shocking to you and me, because these are foundational authors and, and really important when we talk about black Brazilian literature, Conceição Evaristo is basically like the Toni Morrison mm -hmm. um, of Brazil, you know, hasn't gotten all the recognition that, you know, Toni Morrison has, but she has that caliber for sure. Uh, and Cristiani Sobral, who's also um, very prolific, um, I think she's maybe 20 years younger than Conceição, a very prolific mm -hmm. Black writer. Um, and they were just set aside in a room that was very hard to find and a time slot, I think it was like 9 or 10 a.m. Um, at a festival that's honoring a Black woman writer like Carolina Maria Jesus um, was just preposterous, really. And it was it was just another example of how society really treats black women as disposable um you know we can sweep them under the rug we don't you know we don't have to we can we can recognize them once they're dead you know which is the case of carolina maria jesus and then the ones who are still alive you know let's just put them over here in a room over there and then, you know, the West African writers and the U.S. American writers, you know, let's glorify them and make sure their books are front and center. Is that exactly what happened? So, yeah. And, and this is this is struggling because we're talking about Brazil, the largest black population outside of Nigeria, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that happened in apparently the most black country in Latin America. Exactly. And, and you had prolific writers. I mean, it, it shouldn't matter even the, the the public nature of the writer, but in this case, we're talking about two crucial voices in the literary space. And um, yeah, and it happened at a Black university. I didn't even really, I overlooked that. It was organized by a Black university, yeah. Okay, it was organized by them. Um, it's called, the university is called uh, Palmares. Palmares. I don't. I don't know if it's a historically black or majority black, but mm -hmm. you know the name of the university references you know the Quilombo Zumbi dos Palmares that we were talking at the, about at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. But you know, despite um, that type of um, violence, um, these writers are very much selling their books and getting translated in and out and you know in different languages and um and they've created uh, a wide network and inspired you know an insane number of younger black women writers so it's a really exciting time if anyone's listening really exciting time to learn portuguese to travel down to brazil to connect with these writers on facebook on instagram they're always doing lives you know streaming and uh, 
it's just a really exciting time to create more of those um, bridges between wherever you're listening um, and Sao Paulo and Rio and other parts of Brazil. Um, there's really no excuses at this point. I mean, even the language doesn't have to be a barrier because we have, you know, translators online and, and you know, just all these ways that we can connect or connect visually and just listen. If you're speaking Spanish, you can still listen and read Portuguese and just open yourself up to the possibility um, of, of connecting deeply, you know, and, and you'll be surprised. I was surprised. I didn't read Portuguese when I first read um, poetry by Conceição Evaristo, but it hit, it hit me, you know, so just open yourself up to it and, and make an effort to connect. Do you have time for one more question? I promise it's just one question. You don't? Okay. We will save that until another time because yeah. I'm glad that you said no in a way because it probably would have went 15, 20 minutes over. Yeah. I didn't want you to be late to your next engagement. But Sarah, <laughs> I really appreciate you um, coming back on. Yeah, I this well is so great. Sarah's coming back on um, at another time. But I do want you to give the audience, um, if someone had a question and want to contact you directly, what would be the easiest way to get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me online very easily if you look me up, S-A-R-A-H-O-H-M, like Mary, E-R, Sarah Omer, um, CUNY, C-U-N-Y, Lehman College, L-E-H-M-A-N, College, and then you'll see the my page there with my email, a link to my website and everything else. Okay, uh, Dr. Omer, I appreciate you rejoining us again. Kiko, and this is so great. Congrats again on the podcast. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, going it's going so well. I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much. Um, we will see you back in April. Hopefully. Yes, That's the I'm plan excited. Anyway, audience. So, all right. <laughs> Talk to you all soon, beautiful people. Have a great day.